0: Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. My guest today is Dr. Jonathan C. Augustine, but that's the name you'll find on his books. What Dr. Augustine prefers to go by is J, J J-A-Y. Dr. Augustine serves as senior pastor of St. Joseph AME Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is general chaplain to Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. Prior to Dr. Augustine's current pastoral service, he led the historic St. James AME Church that was established in 1844 in downtown New Orleans. St. James is the oldest predominantly black Protestant congregation in the Deep South. While he was at St. James, he was also teaching at Southern University Law Center. Since coming to North Carolina, he has served as visiting professor at North Carolina Central University Law School, and as a consulting faculty member at Duke University Divinity School, where he is also a member of the Board of Visitors and a missional strategist for the Divinity School Center for Reconciliation. Jay is the author of numerous articles in numerous law reviews and of several books. His most recent book is titled, When Prophets Preach, Leadership and the Politics of the Pulpit. His work that I will be talking with him about today is titled Called to Reconciliation How the Church Can Model Justice Diversity and Inclusion. In addition, Jay will discuss with us his work for Duke University's Center for Reconciliation. Well, welcome Jay. Thank you so much for being with me today.
1: Thank you David. It's an honor to be with you. I appreciate the invitation to share.
0: Well, th- Let's let you begin by uh, kind of telling us your own life and spiritual journey, uh, especially as that has led you to becoming a lawyer, uh, an author of books and, and, and uh, articles, uh, academic articles, and then also as a pastor.
1: Yeah, it's been a journey, that's for sure. I'm still on it. <laughs> um, I can affectionately say I am bivocational. Uh, in the true Latin origin of the word, the good Lord called me twice. Um, I uh, I grew up in the Deep South, I, I grew up in New Orleans and I say Deep South because if you go any further deep, uh, go any further south, you'd be swimming, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so as a, uh, as a product of the Deep South, I saw some wonderful things, I also saw some very ugly things and I saw how the narrative of race has been very dominant in the American landscape and in American culture. Um, that motivated me to want to be a voice for those that needed a spokesperson and to be a champion for those who were pushed to the margins. So I pursued a career in law. Um, having grown up in New Orleans, I'm a very proud graduate of St. Augustine High School there an all boys, all black Catholic institution, uh, which helped ground or reinforce the, the strong faith-based principles that were in my home. Um, I attended Howard University in Washington, D.C. Uh, I Had a fully funded Army ROTC scholarship. So I was blessed to serve our country four years on active duty, four years on inactive reserve duty as an infantry officer. Uh, After the four years of active duty, I returned to New Orleans and I went to Tulane University Law School, uh, did a judicial clerkship at the Louisiana Supreme Court and entered the practice of law. I was very interested, again, in civil rights and uh, being a spokesperson for those who needed a voice. And in the midst of that career, in the midst of a very successful career, I might add, uh, the good Lord tapped me on the shoulder and called me to preach. Uh, So a calling to preach, they say, is also a calling to prepare. Uh, That meant earning a Master of Divinity at United Theological Seminary, it meant further study at Princeton Theological Seminary, uh, and earning a Doctor of Ministry degree at Duke University. Uh, It also meant successive pastoral appointments uh, down in Louisiana, ultimately pastoring the oldest, predominantly black Protestant church in the Deep South, Historic St. James AME Church in downtown New Orleans, a wonderful congregation founded in 1844. Uh, And I did that for four years until my most recent assignment in 2019, uh, when I was transferred to St. Joseph, my current pulpit, St. Joseph AME Church in Durham, a wonderful faith-based community that I affectionately call the best church this side of heaven.
0: (laughs) Well, you've written a wonderful book, uh, and thank you for that. Uh, So the the subject of that is is reconciliation. Uh, So in your mind, why? Why you are focused on reconciliation?
1: So I think timing is everything. And the, uh, and the time uh, in which I was doing research to write the book, I knew I wanted to be in the neighborhood of reconciliation. I didn't know exactly the book would take the turns it took. And I think the turns were very, very good turns. Um, uh, and I might say I wrote the book from a twofold perspective. Uh, one, a very responsive perspective or responding to issues to be reactive. Uh, and on the other side, a perspective to be proactive uh, from the from the proactive side uh, I wanted to I wanted to do a good work for the church I wanted to do a good work for the Academy uh, something that could serve for in a hybrid space if you will uh, and be a good resource for both for both church leaders as well as academic leaders at seminaries at law schools and the like in terms of uh, bringing people together particularly along the divisive lines of, of race immigration affirmative action and some of the topics that I lift up in the book Um, But then I had to write it, I think, from a a reactive perspective because America was moving in a very dark direction. Uh, We were going back uh, uh, in a space where I certainly did not foresee us going, uh, but campaign slogans sometimes are everything. Uh, It was written in response to the narrative of Make America Great Again, uh, which as far as I'm concerned was was an attempt to return America to some of its very darkest days. Uh, The country hit a space where we were overwhelmed with white Christian nationalism, overwhelmed with anti-Semitism, with anti-immigrant bias, uh, uh, with anti-minority rhetoric. Uh, The Black Lives Matter movement was obviously responsive to much of the social unrest and much of the the hatred that was targeted at minorities. So my attempt to talk about reconciliation, I think, again, was both responsive to the times uh, and an attempt to be proactive to create a work that would do some good for both the church and the academy.
0: Uh, In your book, You talk about reconciliation as something that was central uh, to the early church, uh, but that we've gotten away from it, and you're advocating that we need to reclaim it. Uh, So in your mind, how did we move away from reconciliation as being central?
1: You know, when you look at the origins of America, when you look at the narrative of white Christian nationalism and our conflation of cross and country, uh, when you think about much of the hierarchy that was instilled uh, in America, uh, much of the uh, the economic incentives that were instilled with the uh, 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 with the transatlantic slave trade uh, and the and the really the social and the racial hierarchy, the narrative of race and how we have subjugated people based on immutable characteristic. Um, uh, America moved in a direction that was the antithesis of reconciliation. Uh, the American church moved in a different direction. Um, I lift up the narrative of uh, the Civil Rights Movement as an attempt, in a secular context, uh, as an attempt to move America back toward reconciliation by focusing, looking at salvation, yes, looking at ecclesial leaders or church leaders, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. being among uh, the foremost, uh, but looking at social egalitarianism, looking at a a sense of equality that church leaders attempted to advocate throughout society, uh, while also saying that, if if we really do hold these truths to be self-evident, that all people are created equal, as the great declaration says, then all must mean all. All is lifted up in the biblical context numerous times as the church takes what I call a trajectory toward reconciliation. And all of course is lifted up in the declaration of independence. So I move into a context here in America of what I call civil reconciliation, of how ministers participated in civil disobedience, uh, attempts to hold government's feet to the fire, uh, and attempts to make sure that our country would live up to its creed uh, of equality for all human beings. So America moved away from, from, from its potential. America did not reach its full potential, I believe. We've had ministers and lay leaders who are very concerned about egalitarianism who wanted to make sure America did reach its full potential. And we're still fighting to, to try to reach that potential today. That's much of what I write about.
0: Well, kind of going. you you mentioned uh, briefly, uh, but kind of go into a little more detail uh, about the three different kinds of
1: reconciliation uh, that you talk about. Sure, thank you so much for that. So I take us on a journey uh, in, in defining reconciliation, or I should say contextualizing reconciliation really in a threefold context. Uh, there is salvific reconciliation, there is social reconciliation, And I write, of course, about civil reconciliation. And just to unpack the three of those very briefly and to try to tie them together with some sort of continuity, uh, if you can or if our listeners can imagine the cross, the image of the cross, Uh, it has a vertical axis or a vertical plane. It also has a horizontal plane. The vertical axis would represent salvation. It would represent salvific reconciliation and that human beings from a Christocentric perspective, Human beings are reconciled in their relationship with God through Jesus. In other words, Jesus died for the remission of all of our sins. But Jesus didn't just die. Jesus also lived. And Jesus lived a life that was deeply rooted in egalitarianism and in pulling people from the margins because he truly showed that we all are God's children. So the horizontal axis of the cross would speak to social reconciliation. It would speak to an egalitarian contextualization that says I know I'm saved, but since I'm saved, what does that mean? It means showing a love for brother, sister, or or they, he, she, or they. It means showing a love for all God's children. So the vertical axis again representing a, 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 a salvation in the kingdom to come. The horizontal axis representing social egalitarianism here in the kingdom at hand. Uh, but then again, if we hold these truths to be self-evident that all people are created equal, a close cousin, if not a sibling of social reconciliation has got to be civil reconciliation it's got to be how the body politic of america treats her children it's got to be the contextualization of all people having equal rights meaning voting rights meaning economic opportunities meaning advancement in society regardless of ancestry regardless of gender so civil reconciliation again i lift up in the book uh, uh, is Dr. King and others who are very concerned in the civil rights movement about fulfilling the potential that America had and in, in speaking truth to power, or as I like to say, speaking truth to institutions of power. So that civil context is the third domain, civil reconciliation. And I think the three fit very nicely together.
0: Well, I like the word you use, trajectory, that you mentioned earlier. Uh, tell us about, about the, the use of that term. How do you see that Kind of coming into
1: relating your three understandings. Sure, so trajectory speaks to a journey. It, it, it has been a linear phase where the church has been on a journey. Uh, the church itself, I, I call for us to return uh, to apostolic origins, to sort of the, uh, uh, the domain of reconciliation that existed then when we moved a, with a spirit of egalitarianism and recognizing others. Uh, much of what I write about in part one of the book and looking at Paul's radical theology uh, uh, the Galatians context, for example, uh when Paul writes in Galatians three neither Jew or Greek, slave or free male or female, but all are one in Christ Jesus, that oneness is uh, is not the elimination of difference it's the elimination of dominance it's the, it's a It's a full egalitarianism with people, uh, uh, probably from a baptismal formula at his time, but what was so radical about that was the patriarchal culture in which Paul lived, so Paul spoke out far ahead of his time. And I'm calling on the church to return to that. Uh, uh, The trajectory, however, that the church has been on, Paul was not the, uh, uh, Paul Paul is part of that trajectory. Paul's leadership is part of that trajectory. When you really think about the church moving toward reconciliation, uh, the church began as a Jewish entity, uh, as a a single uh, uh, ethnic group. Um, uh, The day of Pentecost speaks to us in a very powerful way because you had a diverse group of Jews who came together, filled with the Holy Spirit as the church, the triune church, as we know it was born, uh, but they were still all Jews. Uh, it is when moving from the Acts 2 narrative, when we move to Acts 10, uh, and we see the great narrative of Peter on the rooftop. Uh, Peter is a devout Jew, and this is, this is the J. Augustine version. It's in the King James version, the New International version. This is the J. Augustine version, but now Acts 10, the J-A-V, right? Now in Acts 10, uh uh, peter is is a devout jew and peter god gives him a vision get up kill and eat and and peter sees there you know eat a pork sandwich eat a pork chop eat a ham sandwich eat as i would say in my native louisiana uh, a tongue eat a pot of gumbo with uh with pork sausage in it and peter says no 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 lord you got me all wrong i'm a devout jew those things are profane i can't eat that stuff it's unclean god says how can you call profane that which i have made clean right so peter has what i call a come to jesus session and he says, aha, Acts 1034, I now realize God is no respecter of persons or God shows no partiality. We all are God's children. Peter moves from that into action by baptizing Cornelius and welcoming him as the first Gentile into the church. For me, that is very powerful because the church then moves into reconciliation or following a trajectory of reconciliation by bringing in the proverbial other. And as you follow the progression of acts, obviously, the beauty of the church is that the gospel spread throughout uh uh the world well,
0: true to your roots uh one of your one of your uh favorite metaphors is gumbo uh in relation to this uh so uh, you know flesh that out for us
1: I and love always- gumbo yeah is- we
0: can always talk about gumbo <laughs> uh,
1: amen amen preacher. <laughs> amen um Gumbo, I think, is a wonderful metaphor for me. Number one, let me begin as a as a native of Louisiana. It is it is unquestionably my favorite food on the planet, but it is also a wonderful theology by which to operate in looking at the diversity of peoples and looking at the mosaic of America, the mosaic of the universe and how we all come together uh, as God's children. Uh, to put gumbo in contrast. I think about the melting pot of yesteryear. The melting pot denoted, born out of, uh, of the phrase, America's a nation of immigrants. Uh, it said that people come to America, different diverse groups come to America, uh, and they all melt down. They all are melted into a single pot. I wanna just let that sit for a moment because for me now in 2023, that is that is deeply problematic to say that someone has got to assimilate or someone has got to melt down or water down their authenticity in order to fit in uh gumbo then gumbo then in 2023 is much more applicable i think because gumbo says whoever you are whoever god made you to be black white straight gay whatever the case may be you can bring your full authentic self to the table and be welcomed in the gumbo that means uh, chicken can be chicken, sausage can be sausage, okra can be okra, and we, there's no competition. Uh, we all are in community. We all complement one another. I also think Gumbo is very appropriate today because over the last few years, we have seen some violent acts of racism uh, uh, and white supremacy uh, where we have manifested a white replacement theory or great replacement theory. Uh, as we're about to lift up at St. Joseph AME Church in Durham, We're about to lift up the anniversary of the Emanuel 9 massacre of 2015. That six shooter left behind a white manifesto saying that blacks are replacing us. The same sort of manifesto was left behind after the Topps grocery store shooting in Buffalo, New York last year in 2022. Some call it the great replacement theory again. Some call it the white replacement theory. Gumbo says there's no replacement. Shrimp is not trying to replace chicken. Chicken is not trying to replace okra. They are in communion with one another. They complement one another, not compete with one another. That really is the mosaic that America, I think, should be striving for. So I think the the gumbo metaphor is much more appropriate today than a melting pot was for yesteryear.
0: I agree with that. I think that's a wonderful metaphor. Uh, Grateful. Of the three, you say that your focus in the book is on social reconciliation.
1: Um, So I think... I think I lay a foundation. Again, this is part of the trajectory. I lay a foundation, the book, the publisher of Call to Reconciliation, How the Church Can Model Justice, Diversity and Inclusion. The publisher is Baker Academic. So it's more of a um, I think it's a good read. I'm obviously biased. I'm the author, but it's also a very academic read. It's a book that has footnotes because it's a book that should take you to places where the author got his 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 the author's rationale is based on this. Right so so in in beginning with Salvific reconciliation, we look at Scripture and looking at social reconciliation, we again look at Scripture specifically focusing on paul the the term reconciliation itself is really nuanced and it's it's fleshed out uh through the pauline epistles uh and then moving into civil reconciliation, we pivot to look at uh the history of the civil rights movement to look at uh, uh its two I think most pronounced victories. Uh, that are aimed at the, the diversity of gumbo, uh, uh, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and the institution of affirmative action. Uh, attempts to bring people who are unlike the other into community, one with another, um, uh, and the trajectory continues to our current day, where the church is responding to the "Make America Great Again" narrative. So it is it is an academic read that certainly lays a foundation, but I don't know that that one form of reconciliation is more pronounced than the other. Although I will admit, salvific reconciliation is briefly discussed in the beginning, just to lay a foundation, and then we pivot from there. Um,
0: it, did I did I understand correctly uh, that the Supreme Court recently upheld affirmative action?
1: No, 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 no. <laughs> the Supreme Court just a couple of days ago, uh, uh, surprisingly, upheld a, por- a portion of the Voting Rights Act. There was okay. a challenge to okay. uh, redistricting in Alabama and congressional districts. and uh, and the Supreme Court there uh, uh, affirmed the fact that black voters were being marginalized. The Supreme Court has yet to rule this term on the uh, uh, Students for Fair Action cases uh, from Harvard and the University of North Carolina, but the writing is clearly on the wall. As I write in detail in the book there, uh, uh, the writing is clearly on the wall for the demise of affirmative action, and that is is most unfortunate, I believe. affirmative action is the government's very imperfect attempt to bring people who are unlike the other into communion with the other i liken in the book called to reconciliation i liken affirmative action uh, in a secular sense to what god did in the acts 10 narrative where god put peter and cornelius in communion with one another two people who were not like one another two people who came from different ethnic backgrounds to understand aha God is no respecter of persons, meaning we all have something in common. We all are humans. We all share certain things, and that which unites us is far greater than anything that could divide us. So I believe it is unfortunate that affirmative action is going away, but I think it's, it's unquestionable. It absolutely is going away. Okay.
0: You make a difference between um, reconciliation and
1: equity. Talk about that. As I think about reconciliation, uh, it is, again, it's a very nuanced term. Um, some people would argue, how can we reconcile or how can we put back together something which arguably has never been together in the first place? When we think about the narrative of race in America uh, and the subjugation of uh, a peoples based on immutable characteristics, uh, it, is, it is hard to say, uh, that whites who have always had the dominant or the upper hand in the United States, it's hard to say that there has ever been a level playing field where there's been true equality in the United States of America. Uh, going back to the taking of lands uh, from our indigenous uh, siblings uh, and looking at the, the the institution of chattel slavery uh, and looking at gender subjugation and the fight for women's rights, it, it's hard to say that based on the patriarchal system of America that there has ever been a true conciliatory conceptualization of America where people have all been together to bring them back together to reconcile them. So that is a, that is a nuanced concept. Uh, uh, when I think about equity, however, I think about leveling a playing field where all people can, uh, be in community with one another, have equal access to resources, one with another, uh, and be, and be propped up to a, to a level space, to a, to a level playing field. Um, um, again new, reconciliation may be more nuanced uh because of the history of america but equity attempts to bring reconciliation if you will by putting people all on a level playing field um affirmative action is one attempt to aimed at equity uh it is an attempt that has done well i think over years it's an attempt that has been um uh measured very closely the supreme court uh 25 almost 25 years ago uh, uh, uh issued a ruling saying this is something that will must be measured it's not going uh, it, to it it's going to go away at some point in time it's going to sunset a few years later as we look at cases from Texas Abigail Fisher University of Texas 1 Abigail Fisher University of Texas 2 uh, uh the 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 lines of that measurement have become more and more precise and now uh, uh when the Supreme Court does rule at this term we certainly anticipate it going away but affirmative action is one means by which society has attempted government has attempted to bring about equity uh, uh to put people on the same playing field
0: okay well you, you say that reconciliation is not something that can be done alone um talk about that
1: as i think i i recently did this is this is an illustration uh it may not be directly responsive but i think it's a good illustration Um, I recently did a uh, a panel recently hosted a panel at the at the congregation. I'm blessed to serve a church I'm blessed to serve St. Joseph in Durham um, where we we did an anti-Semitism training or an anti-Semitism panel. Um, And it was it was hosted in concert with uh, uh, several of our Jewish siblings from two synagogues. But it was hosted at a black church. In other words, anti-Semitism is not a Jewish problem anti-semitism is the other problem Uh, uh so so i took it upon myself and those of us in the in the prophetic tradition in the black church took it upon ourselves to say this should be at saint joseph because the community should come to this space recognizing that the onus and the burden on understanding uh this culture this ethnicity this religion these people is not on them it's on the other i say that analogously to say Uh, the burden of reconciliation, the burden of understanding the proverbial other should not be on the other. It should be on the person who is unlike the other to try to understand. Um, The burden of racism cannot be on blacks. Uh, The burden of gender inequity historically cannot be on the backs of women. It is on the backs of the other to make sure we are extending ourselves particularly in the Christian context, uh, to try to understand, uh, uh, to, try to, to try to listen more and talk less, uh, and to try to make sense of our humanity and to come together at a table uh, of equality.
0: Well, you say as a part of reconciliation that there's really kind of two dimensions to that. Uh, there's repentance, and then there's also forgiveness.
1: Very very nuanced Um, I think there are there are three aspects for true reconciliation it is not for the faint at heart for true reconciliation to come about uh, number one it recognizes that there is a dominant class and it recognizes that there is a subservient class that plays out in different contexts obviously based on gender based on race based on the history of America for the purposes of race however let me just say uh, uh, it is it is unquestionable that that whites have had the upper hand in America uh, since the inception of of the country, uh, uh, whatever date you want to use for that. Some may say sixteen nineteen, some say seventeen seventy six. That's a podcast for another day, right? But but it's unquestionable that there has been a disproportionate uh, a, a burden that has been on the backs of those who are non-white since the beginning of, of America. Um, so since one class has been subjugated. There is a heavy burden on that class to engage in forgiveness, to say, I will I will wipe the slate completely clean and we can begin anew. That's very hard work. That's very difficult, given the history that has happened. It is equally difficult, however, for the class that has had the upper hand. It's equally difficult for that class to say, I'm going to engage in repentance, meaning I'm going to do some things differently. I'm going to, I recognize that this system has inherently been set up for my social benefit, uh, but I'm willing to, I'm willing to abandon this system and I'm willing to set in some new systems uh, because this system was wrong. That is inherently difficult too. So it's, it's not for the faint at heart. There are reciprocal obligations, uh, but if both sides, if you will, can, can carry out that work, uh, I think we can truly move to a space of reconciliation and move uh, from the discord of where we are to to go back illustratively to talk about equity, when you recognize that one group has been subjugated for far for so so long, uh, and that group is lacking resources, that group lacks uh, uh, infrastructure, that group lacks so many things because of the biases of race in this context, um, how do we how do we level the playing field? How do we get those people to a place where they truly can participate? In society in a meaningful way Uh, some would say the answer comes and I I, I don't write about this in detail I I, I footnoted in call to reconciliation I do write about it in detail in the in the most recent book I have now uh, um, when prophets preach leadership in the politics of the pulpit but some would say that to to engage in equity and to bring that subjugated group up uh, uh, reparations are needed that is repair Uh, that is an attempt to socially level the playing field in a variety of ways, uh, to make sure there is full citizen participation. Uh, but just to, to directly answer your question, the, the, uh, the, the, the importance of forgiveness is on the part of the subjugated class to say that, uh, uh, I recognize I have been the victim of some things. There's a, there's a limit that goes along with that. Uh, but it's a willingness to let those things go and to begin anew, it's also a reciprocal obligation on the part of the class that has been doing the marginalizing to say that we're going to do some things different in the name of repentance as we go forward. Equally hard in uh, uh, reconciliation, obviously, is not for the faint at heart.
0: Well, as a part of the forgiveness dimension, you say it requires uh, the unlearning uh, as well as also uh, a new learning of, a, of kinds of
1: language. Tell us about that. Sure. So thank you for the question. As I think about uh, the history of America uh, and much of what we have learned through social exposure, uh, much of what we have seen, uh, particularly in the South, uh, as a result of obvious things through American history, um, we all have certain biases uh, uh, that, we have, that we have been exposed to, uh, biases that are us, biases that are inherent. Uh, some people would call them unconscious biases. Uh, uh, implicit biases in some cases if you'll allow me to use a biblical example uh, I lift up the the, the scriptural uh, reference of Acts 10 where Peter obviously is a devout Jew Peter has largely been in isolation with others who are like him who are Jews uh, and who has not been in community with others who are not like him or who are Gentiles uh, so Peter says again God, I, I can't eat that. That is, that is profane. That is, that is unclean. Meaning those who eat pork or those who engage in something unlike my dietary practices are doing something that is unclean. So they consequently, are unclean. That is unconscious bias. That is how he was programmed and, and how he was programmed to think because of his social exposure. The same thing has applied uh, to so many of us in America. And again, particularly in the South, because of the the rich history uh, that the South has, and not all of it clearly has been good. So to really move into social reconciliation, uh, to talk about egalitarianism and how we really are all God's children, uh, that gumbo metaphor again requires the unlearning of many of the inherent biases that we carry based on our social exposure, uh, it requires us sometimes just to let the guard down and the willingness to be in community with others who are not like us, to see that we really share so many things in common, uh, things that stereotypically or things that based on our social exposure, we have learned that need to be unlearned, things we have learned that may not necessarily be accurate. So it requires reciprocally on both parts, from the, from the dominant class an unlearning of certain biases and the And the learning or willingness to to look at some things anew, look at some things differently, it requires the same of the subjugated class, a willingness to unlearn certain biases and a willingness to learn some things anew and to embrace all of us in a pot of gumbo as god's children so uh, a social reconciliation uh yes, definitely does require the unlearning of certain inherent biases and the learning of certain language of equity, one of the things. Uh, I think is important in terms of language. And I have I have become much more proficient at it now, uh, proficient, I think so, uh, because of social exposure. And that is uh, uh, the the, the he, she or they. Uh, I was I was blessed to preach on Pentecost Sunday. um, And I talked about the Acts 2 narrative, of course, the church. uh, We need another Pentecost. I lifted up the many divisions we have and how the Pentecost narrative of Acts 2, Uh, Is the church moving toward reconciliation, but coming in community with those who are unlike uh, the proverbial other rather? The church has got to be a place of welcome for he. The church has got to be a place of welcome for she. And the church has also got to be a place of welcome for they. Uh, So that is an example of learning new language to be responsive to the current times and to make people welcome, especially uh, in God's church.
0: Well, and you, it, it related to this, you talk about uh, that that reconciliation needs to focus less on guilt absolution and more upon
1: repair. That repair is important. Um, uh, the the repair, uh, I, I, I footnote it, I reference it uh, briefly. And if I had a do-over, I would go into more detail in Call to Reconciliation, a book that was published in 2022. I think I did a, a very good job at it in 2023. Uh, And we'll talk a little later, I know, about my more recent book, When Prophets Preach, Leadership in the Politics of the Pulpit. But that concept of repair oftentimes is lifted up as reparations, um, a a, a financial support for many of the atrocities of the past. Repair is a very important concept because the Christian has a duty to repair. Let's be clear about that. There is is an inherent duty as part of our faith practices to repair for wrongs done of the past and to make things anew. A great scriptural example of that, particularly when you think about the government's role, a great scriptural example is the Luke 19 narrative of Zacchaeus, Uh, when Zacchaeus is the is the repentant tax collector uh, uh, and he climbs up the sycamore tree as Jesus is making his pilgrimage toward Jerusalem to see the Lord. Uh, uh, Zacchaeus has a true come to Jesus session and he wants to undo all of the wrongs he's done in the past. Jesus recognizes this. Jesus forgives him of the past. He says, I'm coming to your house tonight. And Zacchaeus wants to undo all of the things he's done. Well, we know culturally uh, that acting as Zacchaeus acted in a in a conflated church and state capacity. There, he he's a he's a Jew. He clearly is a Jew. Uh, uh, the concept of repairing uh, that Zacchaeus references is lifted up in Scripture in Deuteronomy and in Numbers. Uh, uh, but his his desire to uh, make whole is something that we all should emulate. It's something that goes from Judaism to something that's inherent in our Christian teachings. Uh, it's a concept that we have institutionalized in government something i write about a great deal in uh in in when prophets preach it's a concept that we institutionalized in government uh but but andrew johnson came to office after the promise of 40 acres and a mule rather and after abraham lincoln's assassination andrew johnson comes to office he was a a a, a southerner from tennessee and as the bible says in genesis uh, uh the new pharaoh did not know joseph right Andrew Johnson came in and he did not know anything about 40 acres and a mew. He did not know anything about the, the promise of reparations that was made to make people whole of that repair. Uh, so America has never lived up to uh, its potential uh, in that regard. Uh, but a very nuanced subject and, uh, and something that, again, if I can if I can just sort of advertise both books and reading both, uh, I think readers come away with a, with a complete understanding of how we have made promises as a government, how we've walked away from those promises, but how there still are needs in place that I think Christians have a duty to address. You talk about the
0: kind of mutual benefit uh, where the, the society at large can benefit from the church's return to reconciliation, but that the church itself can benefit from diversity and inclusion
1: practices done on the social level. It is amazing in the last few years uh, how, how society, how businesses, how academic institutions have recognized the importance of diversity and have realized from a business perspective, for example, uh, that diversity truly is good for the bottom line. Uh, and I mean that more so or not just in the context of consumers, as in who we're marketing a product to, but I mean the concept of creativity, of how minds and intellectual genius flourishes uh when people are in community with the proverbial other uh in the in the latter part of call to reconciliation i give some concrete examples uh from some wonderful uh references harvard business review books that i lift up about cognitive diversity as well as identity diversity and by those two uh, let me just illustratively say Cognitive diversity is great for problem solving. When you put a diverse group of people, people from different disciplines or people who think differently together, they can really, really address issues. So uh, I'm a lawyer by background. Before accepting the call in the ministry, as I mentioned, I was, a, I was a practicing lawyer. I wouldn't want to be in a room with all lawyers because everybody wants to talk at the same time. Everybody wants to hear themselves speak, right? Uh, uh, but if you're in a room with lawyers, with accountants, with supply chain professionals, with people with backgrounds in linguistics. You can approach a common problem from different disciplinary perspectives, different thoughts, different thought processes and different perspectives that will solve the problem much, much more quickly. How valuable is that in the church when we're attempting to address social problems like food insecurity? How valuable is that in the church we're attempting to do social good and repair wrongs that have been done in local communities. So cognitive diversity is very important because it's wonderful for businesses in terms of driving the bottom line. And again, I mean, driving it not just in terms of consumerism or in terms of specific markets to which a product may be marketed. Um, I also lift up identity diversity as an affirmation of identity diversity. Uh, As we're recording this podcast, let me let me be clear, I'm a lead with this. Uh, example, we're recording this in the month of June, 2023, June is pride month in America. Uh, everyone should be proud of who they are. And I'm glad that in America, we have a specific time where we designate pride, uh, for our LBGT community, a uh, plus community. Um, uh, if we, if we have June is set aside as pride month, uh, February is obviously set aside as black history month. March is set aside as women's history month. Uh, from September 15th to October 15th, we set that aside as Hispanic Heritage Month. There are so many different ethnicities, so many different racial compos- racial groups, rather. Uh, so many different parts of the pot of gumbo, so many different ingredients in the pot of gumbo that we call America. Everyone should be proud of who they are. That is the identity that we bring to the table. I come to the table as a straight black man who is from the South. There are others who come to the table that may be of different ethnic or different racial persuasions from different geographies uh, and have different uh, uh, sexual orientations, but we all are welcome together and identity diversity says that we celebrate that just like a pot of gumbo. Uh, so corporate entities, again, educational institutions have affirmed both cognitive diversity and identity diversity in recent years. Uh, I lift him up by saying that the church, can learn from their example, uh, and their example also, uh, their practices rather, can benefit from the church's early apostolic origins, where again, aha, I now realize God is no respecter of persons, or God shows absolutely no partiality between us, we all are God's children, we all are equals. So there are reciprocal learning opportunities, I believe, from the church and society at large and society at large to the church.
0: Well, you are a missional strategist for the Center for Reconciliation at Duke University. Uh, talk about that role. Talk about the center a little bit. Tell us about that, and then talk about your work uh, relating to that.
1: Sure. The center is a wonderful entity. Its, uh, it's director is, uh, is now the dean of Duke Divinity School. He served in the capacity as director for many years and as a professor uh, at Gardo Colon Emerick. Wonderful, wonderful human being who cares deeply about promoting the equality of all God's children. Um, I have worked with the center uh, for the last few years. I'm a Duke graduate, as I may have mentioned. I earned my uh, doctor of ministry at Duke. I also serve on the board of visitors at Duke Divinity School. Um, if I can if I can just briefly give uh, a commercial advertisement for an institution I love so much and how the institution affirmed me as an individual um, early on. Uh, I was I was on campus uh, in 2017, uh, and I came from a background I should say when we when we started to take down Confederate monuments and memorials uh, in the early part of 2017. Um, I led a prayer vigil down in New Orleans, uh, and and miraculously, the power of prayer, uh, uh statue to Robert E. Lee. Uh, and others were taken down uh, uh, in, in short succession after the prayer vigil televised on local media picked up on cnn something i'm very very proud of in undoing that part of american history or undoing the celebration of that if you want to recall it put it in a library put it in a put it in a in a museum but don't have it on public thoroughfares at any rate um i i came to duke with with that background and i can remember in 2017 um uh the 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 right to unite rally in or the, the right to unite, I believe it was called, rally in Charlottesville, Virginia occurred. Uh, a part of this "Make America Great Again" narrative that I that I lifted up, um, and I can remember the 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 anti-Semitism, the white supremacy that was spewed. Uh, you will not replace us. Jews will not replace us. Uh, and all of the hatred, uh, all of this, and and conversations about monument removal around the country and the like. In the midst of that, in the midst of that, as I was on Duke University's campus, I remember going into the chapel. Duke has a beautiful chapel designed by an African-American, I might add. Um, I remember going into the chapel and there to my right is old Robert E. Lee. Uh, uh, A few days after that, the president of Duke University uh, sent out an email saying, um, I have had the statue of Robert E. Lee removed, uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It's not a part of our future. We recognize it's a part of the past. I'm paraphrasing, of course, uh, as an African-American man, by his action, um, by the institution's support of the president's action, I felt so affirmed. Uh, I felt as though uh, there was a certain dignity and respect that was given uh, to people who have been pushed in the margins and pushed to the periphery that's an example of the kind of institution duke is the kind of forward thinking institution duke is the center for reconciliation really is an arm housed in the divinity school that attempts to carry out that forward thinking message as we attempt to reconcile or bring people together recognizing the disparate and the very uh uh, uh the, the the different uh, uh impacts that that race has had in our country in the past um the center largely prior to 2020 um, was focused, as I like to say, extraterritorially on doing mission work in Africa and in uh, uh, South and Central Amer- C- Central America. Um, I was brought on partially uh, to help flesh out its role domestically, uh, to do more uh, in in Durham, as as I've heard before, your zip code matters, uh, to do more in the American South and bringing people together and using the wonderful resources of a of a Class A institution like Duke. To try to bring people together, particularly through the through the the the, uh, uh, the divinity school again, where religion plays such a central part of who we are in the South. So I have nothing but love and admiration for the Center for Reconciliation. Uh, as we're recording here today, in just a couple of days, uh, I'm going to be hosting at Saint Joseph, again a um, a tribute or a memorial a service of lament and reconciliation for the Emanuel Nine. Uh, uh, the speaker for that will be my friend. Uh, the Reverend Rob Lee, Robert W. Lee, a descendant of General Robert E. Lee, uh, all proceeds from that event, all collections at that uh, memorial uh, will be donated to the Center for Reconciliation at Duke to help continue much of the valuable work that it's doing and trying to bring people together in our community. So it's a, it's an institution I respect tremendously. That's the short answer.
0: Well, as as you know, how I got to know you uh, was in a panel conversation. Um, about Christian nationalism, Uh, and so how does your work uh, kind of relate to
1: to that issue? So it is important, I think, to, as my mother used to say, call a thing a thing. Um, uh, White Christian nationalism is something that has been a dominant part of American culture. Uh, It's something that we have not talked about in those expressed terms until recently by comparison, but it's something that has always been here and something that has influenced much of the patriarchy, much of the white supremacy. Uh, that we've had in America it's something that to a large extent uh during the 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 the, the unprecedented presidency of barack obama uh, to a large extent, we did not talk about because America was focused on i like to call him no drama Barack Obama, no drama as in we just we just did not have drama in the White House we did not we had we had an administration that believed in measure twice and cut once right, so we did not have drama in the White House. But as there was not drama in the White House, there clearly was drama elsewhere, and there was a groundswell of white supremacy that was coming to bear, uh, and much of that was rallied, if you will, by a tricky, clever campaign slogan to make America great again. So we have seen uh, white Christian nationalism manifest uh, uh, in the forms of white supremacy that have been uh, 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 evidenced by acts of violence. Uh, We've seen it as truly a patriarchal form of governance, uh, uh, the January 6th insurrection, uh, uh, the conflation of cross and country where people were flying, holding flags or wearing memorabilia that said, Jesus is my savior. Trump is my president. Um, uh, the conflation of the two has been very, very problematic. Um, uh, and I, and I don't mean to call a name to, uh, uh, to particularly, um, uh, identify with any, any, any individual candidate. As I write about and call it a reconciliation, I believe Make America Great Again cannot be limited to an individual campaign or to an individual campaign slogan, but it is a regressive path that America has taken that is largely associated with white Christian nationalism, and I think it's got to be called out. So I was delighted to be in Asheville that day to work collaboratively uh, uh, with BJC, with the Baptist Joint Committee, a wonderful organization. My friend Amanda Tyler, who does so much work again, as my mother would say, in calling a thing a thing and calling out white Christian nationalism and how it has such a detrimental impact on our society. Part of part of calling a thing a thing is understanding what the thing is, and that's part of what the panel uh, was designed to do. So, um, So I'm delighted to continue in that fight. That is, it's necessary to understand it, to move toward reconciliation. It's necessary to have conversations like this to move toward reconciliation. And I deeply appreciate the opportunity you have given me uh, to talk a little bit about reconciliation and how I unpack it in the book Call to Reconciliation, How the Church Can Model Justice, Diversity, and Inclusion.
0: Well, you've mentioned it a couple of times already, but but as a final question, uh, talk about your new book because it's just recently come out.
1: It, it recently come out and thank you so much for the invitation to share. Um, so obviously we've talked about a work that was published by Baker Academic in 2022, Uh, but here in, uh, at the end of March in 2023 fortress press, uh, published when prophets preach leadership and the politics of the pulpit, it is really, really part two of call to reconciliation. And just to kind of recapitulate, I talked about reconciliation in the threefold context, salvific, social, and civil. That civil reconciliation is really about prophetic leadership. It's about the image of the prophet of old. It's about the image of Jesus as a prophet in speaking truth to power or speaking truth to institutions of power. When you look at uh, the study of Christian leadership, it oftentimes is categorized as the monist triplex doctrine, a munist triplex doctrine, where we look at Christ as the perfect exemplar of the prophet, the priest, or the king, or to put it in non gender specific terms, the royal. So prophet, priest, and royal. Uh, The prophetic leadership, though, Uh, the willingness to address social injustices, the willingness to, again, call a thing a thing, Uh, the willingness to uh, 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 say some things that may make people uncomfortable, but to recognize that the role of the prophet is not so much to make people comfortable, but it's to bring people closer to God's will. And I believe God's will is for us to be in a society where we treat one another equally where we respect one another because we all are God's children. That leadership domain of prophetic leadership, a direct extension of civil reconciliation, is really what when prophets preach is all about. Prophetic leadership is oftentimes institutionalized in the church uh, through the pulpit. It's the willingness of preachers uh, uh, to to, to not just preach the text, uh, preach from the prophetic canon, uh, but a willingness to preach prophetically. Uh, to see things as they should be and not just look at things as they are, to not just talk about the church as an entity that came to bring salvation in the kingdom to come, uh, but to really look at Christ as someone who came to address social inequities here in the kingdom at hand. And that is the role of the prophet. That is the role of prophetic leadership. That is the role of civil reconciliation. And that's really what when prophets preach is all about. That's the core that runs through it. Uh, with a thread of white Christian nationalism as, as an urgent issue, a great threat to our national security uh, that I believe prophetic leaders are called on to address in this day and age. Well, the work you are doing
0: in so many ways uh, is truly the work of God. And so I am very grateful uh, for what you're allowing God to do in, through, and with you uh, and I'm deeply grateful for you being my guest today. So thank you.
1: It is an honor. And your guest cannot see me smiling ear to ear, but thank you so much for that great compliment. It is an honor to be with you. Uh, I enjoy what I do. I truly believe I'm called to do this work because it is so important. And uh, and I thank you so much for the opportunity to share.
0: You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The intro and outro music for this episode is from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come, which is found on the Porters Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and is used by permission from the Porters Gate Worship Project. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian Left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian Left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, Go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings.